1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to extend a special greeting to our men and women in uniform who are tuning in over the internet and welcome new listeners in Boston, Florida and Idaho. Thank you for being with us. In just a moment, former Senator of Texas Phil Graham will be joining us to talk about the growing debt crisis we face in America, and also, having served as both a Democrat and Republican in our nation's capital, what can be done to bridge the growing partisan divide. But before Mr. Graham joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. William Philip Graham was born in Fort Benning, Georgia. Graham received his undergraduate and doctorate degrees from the University of Georgia. He taught economics at Texas A&M from 1967 to 1978, while also operating his consulting firm, Graham & Associates. In 1978, Graham was elected as the U.S. Representative for the 6th Congressional District in Texas. And he was re-elected again as a Democrat to two additional Congresses. Then in 1983, Graham resigned his post and surprised everyone by running as a Republican for his vacated seat and winning. In 1984, Graham was elected to the U.S. Senate, the first candidate to receive over 3 million votes in Texas history, and he was reelected again in 1990 and 96. He served on the Senate Budget Committee and also the Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, where he was known for his strong stance on deregulation. Mr. Graham left office at the end of 2002 and joined Swiss global financial giant UBS as vice chairman. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, economist and former senator for the great state of Texas, Mr. Phil Graham. Welcome to the program, Mr. Graham.
3: Thank you, Rebecca.
2: Now. before we get into the subject of government debt and, and how we're going to dig out uh, i wanted to tell you that i was deeply moved by the story that you've told about your mother working two shifts to keep the family going and what the opportunity meant to her to own her own home and and uh, and as i understand it a finance company offered her a mortgage that a bank wouldn't make is that right that's right can can you tell can you tell our listeners that story
3: it had a little bit higher interest rate, but um, she paid it off. And by the time my mother died, any bank in town would have loaned her money.
2: So, at the time, what was it about your your mother's situation that a bank didn't find her, uh, to you know, able to qualify for a mortgage?
3: Well, I don't remember the exact details. Um I was a boy at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was a widow woman and uh, worked as a practical nurse. Uh, and so um I don't know exactly what part of the qualification that she didn't uh fit uh but she didn't she didn't feel like some injustice had been done. She got a, uh, a mortgage through a finance company and um, uh, worked hard and paid it off.
2: Right, and, and she did not begrudge the fact that she was paying a higher interest rate because probably uh, she understood that that mortgage company was uh, in the business of taking a greater risk and they compensated for that by charging a little bit more in interest.
3: Yeah, as far as I know, if you go back in my family, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure that my mother was not the first person in our family to own her own home. I don't know that because I've not gotten into the whole uh, genealogy thing and looking back at my people. But uh, uh, she did buy the house. She did pay it off. uh, And... um, uh, when it was paid off, she bought another house.
2: Now, there's no question that childhood experience helped to shape some of your opinions later in life about the need to deregulate the banking industry so that there'd be more flexibility in loans and other products and uh, that can be offered. Is that right?
3: Well, I think everybody's childhood experience affects their thinking. Um, uh, my childhood experience certainly created in my mind or reinforced in my mind that in america hard work pays off that there are not really any limits to what people can do if they're willing to work hard um i admired my mother because she worked hard she sacrificed um my brother went to college Nobody in my family had ever graduated. He was the first person in my family ever to graduate from high school. Um, um, so I, I guess growing up really did two things. One, it convinced me there was no limit to what you could do in America if you were willing to work hard. hmm My mother's view was you don't have to lose if you're willing to pay the price. Mm-hmm. If you will, in the heart, start sooner, work harder, and know more than anybody else, you're not going to fail in America.
2: That's right, uh, and, and you're a big believer in in uh, relaxing regulation, so that there would be more opportunity. And uh, the fact is, even the sharpest economists in the world couldn't have foreseen the subprime mortgage collapse coming or the recession well, coming. You know, I mean,
3: see, I. While my mother got, I guess what you would call a subprime mortgage,
4: mm-hmm. it wasn't
3: guaranteed by the taxpayer. I don't think the taxpayer should guarantee those mortgages. Uh, I consistently opposed the uh, quotas set by the federal government on Freddie and Fannie. Yes, I consistently opposed their big portfolios of subtime subprime loans which really allowed them to engage in a giant financial arbitrage. So don't get confused. The fact that my mother was a widow woman who got a mortgage through a finance company Mm -hmm. didn't convert to me supporting federal guarantees for subprime loans. Nobody has a clearer record on that. Yes. Uh, And what happened is, in, in 1995, uh, the federal government started a housing policy where they required 30% of all the mortgages bought by Freddie and Fannie to be subprime. Yes. And by the time the wheels came off, that was up to 56 cents out of every dollar. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that was extraordinarily dangerous. And I knew it was bad policy. Now, why do I support competition? Um, I support competition because it—I have found that government tends to be the source of inefficiency and inequality. Uh, that government regulations often hurt the very people that they're supposed to help. Yes. And uh, I grew up in a world where we didn't want the government to help us. We didn't want the government to take care of us. Uh, I I want my grandchildren to be successful. I don't want them taken care of. Uh, I want them to take care of themselves. I want them to take the responsibility. I think that's part of what being an American is about.
2: I do, too. I, I think we're all used to working hard and, and knowing what the risks are. But overcoming the, that risk is part of the uh, great American heritage, even from our founding fathers. They faced great risk and they worked hard and they overcame those risks. And that was a lot to be proud about. Um, we, we have to take a, a short break. When we come back, uh, we're going to find out what can we do with about all of this government debt that's piling up. Our guest today is Phil Graham, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report.
5: Big Data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, Big Data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today.
2: Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars. And today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business?
6: Um, You know, 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation us being in agriculture in the salinas valley and then the extension of that went to grapes and here we are today to find out more about caraccioli wines visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown carmel california that's caraccioli cellars c-a-r-a-c-c-i-o-l-i cellars where one bottle is never enough Hi, folks, Warren Knox here of Knox Roofing. Are you aware of the 10 most wanted? Miss Sally Sunshine, she'll bake your underlayments to a crisp. Mr. Douglas Fir, known to crash into your roof without any consultation or hesitation. Mr. Forest Fire, if you don't have a fire-resistant roof, he'll toast you when he comes through your town. Mr. Joe Blow Roofer, consider him armed and dangerous. He'll take your money and leave you with a disaster waiting to happen. Mr. Ranging Rain will get into your nooks and crannies and soak you. Miss Wendy Storm, she'll give you a roof. A royal lift when you least expect it. Mrs. Frida Frigid. Her cold temperatures will crack your old shingles. Mr. Hal, Handyman. He'll break more tiles and scuff up more shingles than cleaning your gutters are worth. Mr. Raunchy Rodent. He'll chew a hole into your home and he'll make it his own. And last is Mr. Old Man Time. This man will visit every roof sooner or later and when he does, your time will be up. Okay, call Knox Roofing to keep the 10 most wanted out of your home. 461-0634. Thanks, folks.
7: Well, it's not the silver, but it is only one year short of the 25th anniversary of our ownership of your and our favorite radio station. This Saturday, January 31st, and celebrate we will 24 years of wild rides with never a dull moment. Well, not too many dull moments of mostly engaging and rarely boring audio content for everyone and we are only just getting started so y'all are invited to join me along with our good friend george nori and yet another major radio industry titan to remain a secret on the next ksco special this saturday 10 a.m to 12 noon right here on it's about time we had some real fun radio am 1080 ksco
2: back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senator from Texas, Phil Graham. And before the break, you were making the point that often government regulations hurt the very people that they're designed to help. And, and you've also uh, previously pointed out that many people are under the impression that if you have more regulations, that you'll have fewer mistakes.
3: Yeah, well, normally what regulations do is they force business to devote resources. Uh, to uh, meeting the regulation rather than meeting the needs of their of their customers. And look, I am in favor of uh, a sound system where people are held accountable for what they say and what they do and what they promise. But I think that. Uh, and a perfect example is our current regulation of the banking system. We had a financial crisis because the government force fed subprime loans to people that in the end uh, couldn't or wouldn't pay them back. Yes. And those loans were securitized and in essence injected into the arteries of the financial system of the world. And so when those loans failed and the uh, securitized uh, instruments that had been built on them started to dramatically fall in value, it destroyed the financial base of the country. But the problem Came from government housing policy. Now, what happened was that of all the areas that were dealt with in Dodd Frank in the name of responding to the financial crisis, nothing was ever done about Freddie and Fannie. Mm-hmm. Nothing was ever done about community reinvestment that, in essence, pressured banks to make bad loans. But instead, a massive expansion in government regulatory uh, power uh, occurred in areas that had nothing to do with the financial crisis, Uh, like uh, securities firms, Mm -hmm. Uh, most insurance companies, hedge funds. You may like them, you may not like them, but they didn't have anything to do with the financial crisis. And I would have to say, that banks were as much victim as villain, probably more victim than villain. Mm -hmm. But what happened is it became an opportunity to massively expand government power over banking. It had been an agenda among progressives for 100 years, and the financial crisis gave a reason to do it. And so what we have now is we have a a financial system that is largely controlled by the federal government at your large banks that are deemed systemically significant, meaning if they failed, it would have an effect on the economy. You literally got hundreds of bureaucrats embedded into these uh, companies. It sort of reminds me of the old uh, Soviet system of political officers in companies. Um,
2: well, I'll and- tell you, proof that uh, of everything that you're saying is Ben Bernanke went to refinance his house and he couldn't qualify. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know how much proof we need that the banks are uh, have uh, have so much regulation and so much stipulation about loans that they can make now that they can't even make a loan to Ben Bernanke.
3: Well, I had an interesting little thing that all my credit cards had been in my wife's name all these years. And so um, I decided to get a credit card. And I discovered, I, I assume, since a, I didn't owe any money on anything, uh, that I must have great credit. <laughs> yeah, it shows you how laughable. Money.
2: Senator, senator,
3: well, senator, I senator. Got a credit card that had a limit of twenty five hundred dollars. It
2: has nothing to do with whether the fact that you've always paid. In fact, they don't even give you a good credit score if you owe no money. Uh, you never borrow any, and you never uh, you never spend any money. Well, that's I the that's a, the worst I credit score you, credit you can get. Course.
3: I had no credit score, even though I have perfect credit. So anyway, it's taken me a while. I explained to them, hell, I got you know. I work all over the world, and so you know, in some places, wouldn't pay my hotel bill. So anyway, but I over time, I gradually have gotten it fixed. But it's a crazy system. I remember when I was in commercial banking. When I was in college, I worked for the CNS Bank in Atlanta. We still made loans based on people's character. Uh, Boy, you can't do that today.
2: No, no, I don't think anybody uh, would disagree with you. Uh, And, and, you know, the days uh, when you could do a stated income loan based on your assets, those are gone, too. Uh, I, I mean, if anyone's ever been... All these retirees that don't have a pay stub anymore... They, I hope they hold on to their houses, because if they try to buy a new house without a pay stub, uh, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah,
3: well, you can see why they want proof, given all the millions of people. It but bought. your
2: assets, your assets ought to be enough proof. You know, I mean, I know, uh, you know, millionaires many times over that are having a hard time getting a home loan, and I can't make heads or tails out of that, Uh but, uh, you know, I think what you're saying is uh, absolutely true and, and has, uh, uh, and I personally experienced it myself. Now, I, I want to switch gears here for just a moment and talk about the debt that, you know, we're talking about the U.S. and our monetary policy. We're up to $18 trillion in debt, and that's about $56,000 per citizen. But what's more disturbing to me is that if you divide that debt amongst taxpayers, it's about It's gone to about $160,000 per taxpayer, and it doesn't seem like there's any plan to, to stop uh, this hole that we're digging. So as an economist, and I only have a couple minutes here, and I'm unfortunately going to have to take a break, but uh, uh, as an economist, how does this all come to an end?
3: Well, it's going to come to an end when we start changing uh, government programs, not only Do we have all this debt and relatively little to show for it? But it's growing. It is going to grow as these entitlement programs expand as we have more people retired and we have fewer people working. And uh, uh, the debt doubled during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Um, But the underlying driving force is the Modern Entitlement Program, which provides benefits where supposedly you're paying for your benefit, but the reality is they take your money and give it to somebody else, and then they're counting on somebody else coming in to pay benefits, to pay benefits that will go to you.
2: Yes, uh, we're going to have to go to that hard break here, but when we come back, let's pick up on those entitlements and uh, whether they really, truly are guaranteed by the government or not. We have to take another short break. Stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Phil Graham. You're listening to The Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same
8: way. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up... It may change your life. The symptoms of PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, are caused by the many cysts which produce lots of both male and female hormones. Excessive production of female hormones are associated with bad periods, sometimes no periods, bloating, weight gain, obesity, moodiness, sluggishness. While the excessive male hormones she produces can cause oily skin, acne, sometimes hair on the chest and back, thinning hair on the head. The hormones secreting cysts are themselves associated with insulin and blood sugar, and most PCOS. PCOS. PCOS patients have oftentimes undiagnosed pre-diabetic signs. That means PCOS needs to be first treated as a sugar processing problem, and secondly, PCOS patients, who usually have underlying digestive problems, are going to want to look here too. PCOS patients should focus especially on fat malabsorption, gallbladder and liver health issues, as well as the health of the intestine. Vitamin C is helpful for all hormone health issues, and you want to make sure you're getting fatty vitamins too, especially vitamins E and A, lecithin granules with fatty meals can support fat metabolism and it wouldn't be a bad idea to finish off all meals with a little apple cider vinegar which can stimulate the secretion of fat digestive enzymes from the pancreas probiotics can be helpful as can supplemental bile salts and digestive enzymes think zinc important for balancing hormones and selenium, which has a stabilizing effect on estrogen. Some women can get relief by using progesterone cream. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do Its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com.
9: Oh, the pain. We're so connected that we get instant news, and the news is usually bad, which just adds to the stress. So, how do you discover for yourself what is always happy, what's always at peace, what's always stress free in any single moment, even in a moment of tragedy, even in a moment of loss? even in a moment of heartbreak. To discover this for yourself is what we do in satsang, a meeting that gives you an opportunity to discover how stress happens in your life. How do you suffer and how do you break free from that suffering? How do you realize what's always happy, what's always at peace, even when you're frustrated, even when things aren't going the way you want them to?
1: Find peace, an end of suffering, and the pure happiness that lives in the core of your being at Kosi's Satsang, Thursday the 29th in Carmel. Details at KOSI.co. Find peace, an end of suffering, and the pure happiness that lives in the core of your being.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former Senator from Texas and expert economist Phil Graham. And before the break, uh, you s- we're starting to go into the heart of the debt problem, which are, of course, the entitlement programs. But but, Mr. Graham, every time we try to tackle these programs, uh, we've got the issue that by law, the government must pay out the entitlements, uh, which they don't have the money to pay. And And every leader is guaranteed to lose voters in the next election uh, if they try to, you know, cut uh,
10: benefits.
3: Well, let me respond to that by saying that, let me just start with explaining the modern entitlement. The modern entitlement was born in a unifying Germany, a Prussian named Otto von Bismarck, who was a political genius came up with the idea of taxing people who were working in the name of paying for their retirement, but instead of investing the money, using the money to pay retirement to people who had never paid any money into the system. In other words, just skip a generation. Normally, to provide a benefit in, well, to provide a benefit in the private sector, you've got to create wealth. Mm -hmm. But the government was able to redistribute wealth by having current workers pay for current retirees and future workers pay for current workers to retire. And Germany uh, was a young country, uh, uh, very low average age. And uh, yeah, it obviously was a popular benefit. And um, what has happened is is that virtually every Western country has adopted the Bismarck system, including the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, if you listen, to, if you read about read the debate that occurred in the 1930s, and you read what Franklin Roosevelt said in the debate. You would believe that he was talking about workers paying in to Social Security and their money being invested on their behalf to pay them when they retire.
2: Well, he wanted That's to quarantine kind of that money. Didn't Roosevelt want to quarantine that money and want and was pushing for there to be some kind of laws to protect the money you put into the, uh, these accounts?
3: Well, it's hard to say exactly who wanted to do what. But what the outcome was that we ended up setting up a system where no wealth was ever created. No investments were ever made. The Social Security Trust Fund is simply a bunch of non-negotiable pieces of paper in a filing cabinet in West Virginia. And since no money was ever invested... No wealth was created, and so it doesn't benefit from what Einstein called the most powerful force in the universe, and that is the power of compound interest. Now, again, in the 30s, we were a young country. I don't remember the exact number, but it sticks in my mind something around 14 people were working for every person that was retiring. I think the average person lived to be about 60 you didn't get the benefits till you were 65. But what happened over time was that the num- people lived longer and longer. Benefits became more and more generous. We had early retirement at 62. And uh, now, with labor force participation rates declining, with a lower percentage of the population working, The problem has even gotten worse. We then adopted the same system for Medicare. And so the bottom line is we have promised things that we cannot pay for. Now, I don't know what is going to happen, but I know that these benefits will never be paid for because society is not capable of making the payment.
2: But this is one of the things I want to ask you. You're one of the smartest economists in the country. And, and you're not in Washington right now. And if anybody can speak the truth, it's you at this point in time. And I want to ask you, how is this going to resolve? Because we've well, got one-third of the country coming of retirement age in about the next decade.
3: Well, we're already, baby boomers are retiring left and right. Right, right. And uh, this problem is about to get much, much worse. If you look at the Congressional Budget Office projections, the deficit has come down partly because interest rates are zero, and so we're not paying anything to serve as the national debt. But as you get further out in the future and these entitlements cut in, these deficits come back with a vengeance. Now, Here is the good news to the extent that there is good news. There's not much good news. The good news is that almost immediately, someone challenged the Social Security system, and it went to the Supreme Court, claiming that they had a benefit. Uh, And the Supreme Court ruled that they had no benefit that the system was a system that uh, payments were, in reality, a tax, and no one had a guarantee of anything. Mm-hmm. Their benefit was what Congress said it was. and is one of the most cynical cases given the whole debate about Social Security, but another argument for another day. So Social Security and entitlements have been changed many times. Uh, Reagan eliminated three Social Security benefits, the death benefit, the adult-student benefit, and the minimum benefit, in one vote on one day. Mm -hmm. Uh, He worked out an agreement with Tip O'Neill on a bipartisan basis. I was in Congress. I supported the agreement that raised the retirement age from 65 to 67. Mm -hmm. We're still phasing it up right now. So what do we need to do? Well, I think the the thing that should be most disturbing to people is that we really know what we've got to do. Uh, we've got to raise the retirement to 70, uh, the retirement age to 70. People are living longer, and they're going to have to work longer. People are healthier. Uh, we've got to do something about setting Uh, standards for disability the disability roles have exploded under the Obama administration you've got some unions where over 50% of union members qualify for disability when they retire early Mm -hmm. Um, the uh, so we've got to raise the retirement age to more reflect the lives that people are living We've got to raise the early retirement age from 62 to 65. Um, And um, we have a price index that we use to index Social Security. President Clinton changed it once. He updated it. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Obama has proposed making a change in it. But basically, the problem with the index is it assumes as relative prices change that you continue to buy the same things. Well, we know that's not the case. Yes. And so the consumer price index overcompensates people for inflation. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of Medicare, the problem is much, much harder. We're moving in all the wrong directions. Obama's cut Medicare to fund his health care program with no real reforms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So we got to give people a stake in the game where with co payments and deductibles, they make choices. And I know that that's hard, but the government's going to make the choices if we don't make them.
2: That's a a very good point. We either turn them over to people to choose those options or the government will choose them for us. Now we have to take our final break, but we'll be right back after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report.
9: love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate.
0: Physicians Medical Group of Santa Cruz, independent physicians for independent people. Consider this, hundreds of doctors in Santa Cruz County all working together to provide the care that's right for you. It's the reality for PMG patients. Since we're independent, we're free to employ best practices right away, saving you time, money, and delivering the best outcome through communication. Visit pmgscc.com.
1: I don't care what they say. If you own a business, you did build that. You faced the tough challenges and you made the smart calls. So if your business is growing and you need more space, make the smart call today. General Steel. Our buildings have been used around the world, saving our customers as much as half the cost and time of conventional construction. As much as half. If your need is for storage and manufacturing, sure, we're the best. But with our custom exteriors and designs, General Steel buildings are used as offices, churches, retail stores, and more. Imagine a 5,000 square foot building for less than $35 thousand dollars or even ten thousand square feet for an unbelievable price under seventy five thousand these are prices you just can't ignore on a building designed specifically for you make the smart call and call general steel today at eight hundred ninety eight steel save as much as half the cost of conventional construction and own the space you need call eight hundred ninety eight steel that's 800-987-8335
10: this is Steph.
1: This is Rob.
10: Join us for Out in Santa Cruz Saturdays at 7 p.m. as we bring you the hottest LGBT topics and guests of the week.
6: It's fun, it's fabulous, and we don't shy away from controversy.
10: Visit outinsantacruz.com for past shows and more.
6: And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, join us on Out in Santa Cruz at 7 p.m. Saturdays on KSCO AM 1080. I'm Steph. I'm Rob. And,
10: and you've been, been queered. queered.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Phil Graham. And we've been talking about government debt and entitlement programs. So let me move on to another subject and ask you about tax cuts. Uh, Going back to the Reagan era, you've been very consistent about advocating tax cuts as a way to get the economy moving forward. So um, where, where do you see these tax cuts are needed most? Where would you start?
3: Well, I think what I would do in the current environment that we find ourselves is to do a tax reform program like we did in 1986 on a bipartisan basis Mm -hmm. Um, where we go through the tax code and take out all the special interest provisions um, and use all the savings that come from that to lower rates and do it across the board so that the system is not more progressive or less progressive than it was before. People forget with all this talk about fairness that the top 10% of American taxpayers pay a larger share of the total federal income tax burden in America than they do in France. So we already have a very, very progressive tax system. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is to simply go through the tax code and eliminate every provision that is in there to help some interest other than the public interest. And um, uh, uh, on ones uh, where uh, you've got such a strong political base form that you can't eliminate them, like the deductibility of mortgage interest
10: rates,
3: at least eliminate the ability to deduct interest on two homes, uh put a cap on it if the idea is to help middle-income people have it help middle-income people
4: Mm -hmm.
3: quite frankly i would rather have lower rates than deductions because to get the benefit of deductions you got to do something you may not want to do so we could if we did this right You would have tremendous unhappiness as we went through the tax code and took out subsidies for this, that, and the other. But uh, in the end, you would have a much more efficient system that was a lot fairer and that encouraged people to work, save, and invest. That's what Reagan did in 1986. Uh, That passed with an overwhelming bipartisan vote um uh there is strong support for it in congress much of it on a bipartisan basis the sticking point to this point has been president obama's demand that in return for doing it that we raise taxes Mm -hmm. which is a non-starter so the purpose of tax reform is not to raise taxes The purpose is to collect taxes in a more efficient manner. And the whole, everything we do on taxes ought to be aimed at one thing, raising the revenues we need while influencing the economy the least. Mm -hmm. That ought to be the guiding principle.
2: But you bring up a good point, and you've been on both sides of the aisle. You started out as a Democrat. You uh, later ran as a Republican. But as you watch uh, the White House and the Congress right now, GOP-dominated Congress, um, how's that going to get resolved? Uh, Because we've got a lot of problems on on the table, uh, problems that have been with us for one Congress after another, one White House administration after another, uh, and and they, they're exponentiating. I mean, it might have started out as a snowball the size of a hand. Now it's the size of a building.
3: Well, here's the problem. We've had, in my political lifetime, we've had two presidents who were very effective in working with Congress. One was Ronald Reagan, and one was Bill Clinton. And um, um, when you compare Bill Clinton's State of the Union address, the January after the Democrats lost control of both houses of Congress, with Obama's State of the Union address, the January after Democrats lost control of the Senate and therefore didn't control either house, the difference is just absolutely
2: stark. How would you characterize that difference?
3: Well, uh, uh, in essence, Bill Clinton said, I got the message. Uh, The age of big government is over. Mm -hmm. He worked with Republicans in Congress to uh, control spending. He cut the capital gains tax rate. We balanced the budget we actually had a three-year period where we reduced the debt. Uh, Reagan, as I've said before, never would have had a program because it was a Democrat-controlled House by mm-hmm. a substantial margin had he not had bipartisan support on virtually everything. But they were people you could work with. They knew how to negotiate. They knew how to close a deal. I know this sounds bad, but it's, I feel it's the truth, and one of the things about being old and out of office, you can say what you think is the truth.
10: That's true.
3: President Obama does not seem to understand that in dealing with people in a political setting, victory is not running over people. If you're going to have to deal with the same people the next day— I never found it to my advantage as a senator to make enemies. And I think if if you talk to uh, uh, some of the more liberal senators, like uh, Harkin or Barbara Mikulski, uh, they're going to say good things about me. Because when I was out of power, I tried to be constructive when we were in the majority. Uh, I tried to be sensitive to the minority. President Obama tends to think his approach is basically to run over people.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, I always draw the comparison that it's like fighting with a family member. What's the point? You're going to see him at Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, the next wedding (laughs) and funeral. Uh, There's no point in picking a fight with your family.
3: Well, it's, I don't know, you know. I will say about Clinton that he had a pretty liberal agenda when he was elected. He wanted to basically take pension funds and have them invest in projects that uh, had social benefit. Very radical idea. He had the Clinton health care bill where he actually told you what he was going to do, something Obama never did. But when the public said no, he realized that his responsibility was leading the country. And if they didn't want to go where he wanted to go, his job was to take them where they wanted to go. Yes. And uh, I've always admired him for that
2: yeah, well, that's the responsibility for, I think, any leader that's elected by the people. you you are acting there, you're acting in the public good.
3: And unfortunately, Graham, uh,
2: uh, Unfortunately, Senator Graham, I, I could talk to you for hours. We are out of time, uh, but before we let you go, I want to thank you for making time to speak to us today and also for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Graham.
3: Listen, I enjoy it every day of it. Thank you very much. Bye.
2: Thank you very much. If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Phil Graham, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And uh, speaking of mixing things up, in the studio here, my guest next week is the popular talk show host and author Tom Hartman who says it's time to amend the Bill of Rights to include the right to work and that we have to raise the minimum wage to make America stronger. Uh, Tom Hartman just delivered his version of the State of the Union Address, and I know you'll all want to hear what Mr. Hartman has to say, so don't miss the always outspoken Tom Hartman next week on the only weekly news program that puts policy ahead of politics. I want to take a moment again to thank our guest today, Senator Phil Graham, for taking time to be with us and to weigh in on our nation debt issues, and how we might solve those. Now stay tuned for a second hour of the... (laughs) I just knocked my coffee all over, and Sam is looking at me saying, Rebecca, get to your tagline. All right, we will get to our tagline. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report.